Well, the Old Testament repeatedly asserts that the Messiah, when he appears, when the Messiah comes, he shall not simply restore Israel, but he shall call the Gentile nations. We saw this in the Isaiah 60 reading, the Old Testament lesson. The wealth of the nations, the kings and their people shall stream to the Messiah into his kingdom. This Sunday, Sunday after Christmas, is the Sunday of the Epiphany, or the unveiling, the presentation, the light breaking forth of the Lord. And so we'll take a one-week break from the Gospel of John to look at this text, this Gospel text from Matthew chapter 2. This is a strange story, and it's endlessly fascinating uh, there's, there's an enormous amount of speculation about the story. People are always trying to figure out stuff about the star, uh, this story of the Magi. But the, the big picture is this is the onset, this is the beginning of the fulfillment of the great messianic promises in the prophets that the gospel and the light of God would shine out to the Gentile nations, a thing we take for granted but a thing that ancient Israelites did not take for granted. So these shadowy figures in this gospel text are, get this, the first Gentiles to come to the brightness of Christ's appearing. These guys. And and Matthew is, is so concerned, so concerned to show the universal scope you know, the cosmic range, the international range of the Messiah's work, that in Matthew's gospel, these foreigners are not simply the first Gentiles, they are the first people, period, to come to Jesus. There are no shepherds in Matthew's gospel. So, we'll make three points. The Magi and the Star... Herod's response and the worship are on the back inside page of your bulletin. You could ignore the last two lines under the third point. They seem to be uh, left over by mistake. So anyway, the first point is the Magi and the star. So we're in Matthew chapter 2. I think everyone knows the story. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, during the time of Herod, so we have a concrete historical time frame here. Wise men, the word is magi, from the east came to Jerusalem. So these these magi were, the best we can tell, a class of men descending from Babylonian or from Persian priest astrologers. Persia, remember, Babylon, are east of Palestine, over in what is today Iran. So these men would study the stars. They were something of the scientists of their day. But remember, they're studying the stars at a time when there's really no hard and fast distinctions between astronomy and astrology. And in some cases, magic and even divination. And they would likely be counselors to eastern kings. Now, magi also could be rank sorcerers. The word is used that way in Acts chapter 13 of Simon Bar-Jesus, a Jewish false prophet. 
But here, magi is not used with any negative connotation. These are obviously honorable and noble men. In many ways, they are the intellectual class of the East. And so they come to Jerusalem. It's a long journey. We'll talk about this in a little bit. Jerusalem is the city of kings. And in the first century A.D., there was widespread, not just among the Jews, but there was widespread expectation that a universal ruler would emerge from Judea. This is really a remarkable thing. I mean, you can tell from just reading the New Testament, just reading the Gospels, that there was messianic expectation in the air around the time of Jesus' birth and life. But how about this? Tacitus, who's not a Jew, Tacitus is a Roman historian. He says this, first century Roman historian. There was a firm persuasion that around this time, the East was to grow very powerful, and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire universal empire. Suetonius, another Roman historian, expresses the same sentiment, as does Josephus, a first century Jewish historian. So you have this expectation of the emergence from Judea of a universal ruler. And in verse 2, after arriving in Jerusalem, the king seekers, the magi, they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now this designation sets off a firestorm, as you know. Matthew has now, at the very outset of this text, set up this confrontation right? by calling Herod the king. Matthew's already done that. Herod the king. And then he has the Magi show up and ask, where is the king of the Jews? So this story, well-known story, is really about a clash of kingdoms. There's a confrontation of sovereignties about to break out here, and the reader should be asking, who is going to prevail? Which kingdom is going to prevail? Which king is going to triumph? Yet, what's even stranger than the fact that some Persians from hundreds of miles away come to Israel, and they know about the birth of the Messianic king, I mean, that's odd. But Even more odd is the method they use to obtain this knowledge. They say, we saw his star in the east, or we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. What are we to make of this star? Well, there there are people to this day who are still trying to pin it down. And, you know, there are some people that even claim that they figured out which star it is. There are, there are really a couple of main ideas. One is that it was a comet, usually Halley's Comet. But comets crossed the heavens too quickly to be followed, and Halley's Comet appeared too early. It appeared about 12 B.C. Um, this is a little after 12 B.C. This Herod dies in 4 B.C. So the second idea is that it was some sort of supernova, And the third theory, which has the most adherence, is that it was a kind of planetary conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter, which we know occurred, according to Kepler, in about 7 BC. So that theory has adherence. It has some adherence, anyway. The timing seems about right, but it doesn't account for the movement of the star. 
So while there are some people who are convinced that they can actually pinpoint the, the phenomenon here, the vast majority of scholars say we're not quite sure yet. Whatever it is that God did with this star, he did it so that you know, these men, through the knowledge they had of the heavens, the creation itself would draw them to Christ. That's the astonishing thing here. But it is obscure. This heavenly guide is obscure. But we can say a few things, I think, with a little more certainty. We know that God reveals himself in his word, but he also reveals himself in the creation, in nature. And in this case, the creation leads them straight to Jesus. So there's something about God doing things in a way to meet people where they are. This was their craft. This was their vocation. There's something of the infinite mercy of God in this text, accommodating himself to these men in this highly speculative craft that they had. You know, they're looking for clues in the universe. There are seekers in the world. Even though men are alienated from God, there are still men who are seeking, who look for clues, who are trying to pay attention to the world, and God often condescends to them. Something like that is going on here. But still, even once we've said that, you still have to ask, how would they even know to watch the sky and connect it with the Messiah's birth? Well, here, again, we can do some holy, I think, biblical, but yet somewhat speculative reasoning. Remember, the Jews were exiled into what became Persia in the 6th century B.C., So it turns out the people of God were in this part of the world. And the Holy Scriptures were in this part of the world. And many of those Jews never returned. Daniel was among the Jews that were exiled. And remember, Daniel had his own place among the magicians and the priests. Daniel knew, perhaps, this class of people. right? And quite possibly, these men come from the same vocation, the same set of court officials that served Nebuchadnezzar. In the book of Daniel, not only was Daniel enlisted, but three of Daniel's friends, three other Hebrews were enlisted. So there was cross-pollination, if you will. And so it's, it's not unreasonable at all to assume that people in Persia would know of Jewish messianic expectation. And this could have fueled the interest of the Magi. Remember, we already saw there was some sort of universal expectation that a ruler would emerge from Judea. So they may have known the Jewish scriptures about the coming of the Messiah. But there's another text that is almost certainly in Matthew's mind here, and it's from Numbers 24. It's the prophecy of Balaam. You remember Balaam, right? Kind of a quasi-pagan prophet, also from the east. Balaam said this. He said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So for our purposes, it's important to see, Balaam is a Gentile. He's from the east. The numbers tells us he comes from over near the Euphrates. You know what's interesting? The archaeologists in 1967 on the east bank of the Jordan River, found an inscription. The inscription said, Balaam, the son of Beor, seer for local deities. 
remarkable confirmation of the existence of this oddball prophet in the book of Numbers, found in 1967 by an archaeological team. But anyway, Balaam's a prophet. He prophesies of a star, heralding the Messiah. He prophesies against a wicked pagan king named Balak, even as this event takes place against the wicked Herod. And so that story is certainly underneath Matthew's text here. Remember the Old Testament reading. Kings will come to the brightness of your rising. The brightness of your rising. So apparently these texts, surely these texts were known by the Jews in exile. They created an expectation that the Messiah's coming was somehow connected to the stars. That, by the way, I think is about all we have. I, for one, think it's still pretty thin. You know, I mean, still you'd have to ask the question, how would they know that this star at this exact time, the whole thing still remains shrouded in mystery. But we do have here a kind of startling use of scripture and creation and the natural interests of men to bring the first Gentiles to the Messiah. It's a wonderful contrast when you think of it. In the Christmas story, you have these shepherds who are locals. They're Palestinians. They're just over there in the fields. They get a direct heavenly revelation. Angels appear to them and say, go right over here. And they have a simple kind of faith. They go. Here, you have, an, you have these people are not shepherds. They're intellectuals. They're 800 miles away. And they're picking up on clues and strange, mysterious backdrops and traveling a long distance. God calls both kinds of people. These people are using their reason. They're speculating. They have some broad scriptural background. So this weird story is the onset of the fulfillment of all the promises of the prophets to draw the people to Christ, even Persian astrologer priests. So the second thing I want us to look at is Herod's reaction. When he hears this, he's disturbed. Now, you have no reason to be disturbed if he wasn't a tyrant and he didn't see the threat. All Jerusalem's disturbed with him, the text says. The entourage stirs up the whole city. It's texts like, like the Isaiah 60 text, which say, Kings shall come to the brightness of your rising, which led to the tradition that these men were kings. But Matthew doesn't say they're kings. Notice that. We don't, we don't know that they're kings. And they almost certainly were priests or counselors. And there's no way there was only three of them. That tradition arises from the fact that they bring three gifts. Right? This would have to be a fairly large entourage because of the distance of the journey. Right? Also because when they arrived in Jerusalem, they stirred up not only the whole city, but they got the attention of the monarch, Herod. Right? That's not going to happen if three guys just wander in. So, you know, we three kings of Orient are is wrong about the three, and it's wrong about the kings. The Orient part, that's good. <laughs> we large entourage of priests of the Orient are is a much less catchy Christmas tune. But be that as it may, Herod is now nervous 
Now, this Herod, he, by this time, he's ruled Judea for, for over 30 years. He has some real, um, I mean, he's, he's, he's a bloodthirsty dictator, but he has some skills. He was involved in a lot of building projects, architectural renewal. He, 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 he was involved in restoring the, t- the Jewish temple. But he was known to be easily threatened by rivals. He killed his own wife. He killed three of his sons. And so that brutal murder of the infants in Matthew's gospel, which follows right on, on the heels of this story, which he's about to perpetrate, it fits perfectly with his character, what we know of him. Right? He's a modern-day pharaoh who used midwives to kill Israelite babies. And so, like most kings and politicians, he has no use for theology unless he gets into a jam. And he's in a jam, so he calls the teachers of the law in, the chief priests, in verse 4. And he inquires where the Christ is to be born. Now, all of a sudden, the fact that there's a rival king means Herod is now interested in the Old Testament. So, he wants to know where the Christ is to be born. Notice Herod's language. He doesn't say, where is the king of the Jews to be born? You know why he doesn't say that? He's the king of the Jews. That's his title. Yeah, the Magi's might be talking about a king of the Jews. I'm the king of the Jews. But he knows there's this Jewish thing called the Christ, and these Jews think he's a king. So let me figure out when this king is supposed to, this Christ is supposed to be born. So he, he, he instinctively knows there's some sort of threat here. He was half Jewish, by the way, Herod. Half Jewish. He was a Roman puppet. He was installed by the Roman Senate and declared to be the king of the Jews somewhere around 40 B.C. He ruled a long time. So he would be particularly exposed by a king in the Jewish royal family, in the Davidic line. So in verses 5 and 6, he's got the scribes and he's got the chief priests. He's got this little council assembled. And they dutifully and they correctly tell him in Bethlehem. That's where the Christ is to be born. They cite this prophecy from Micah 5 about a ruler. About a Davidic king. You know, it's interesting. These uh, theologians here are probably view this as just doing their duty. But it seems very clear that they're kind of court puppets. Sycophants. I mean, they told the truth. Herod called them and said, when's the Christ going to be born? But they knew Herod. They knew his character. They'd seen his wickedness. Nevertheless, they still want to show up at the White House. Right? They still want to be seen with the president. You know what this is called? This is called truthful capitulation. I mean, they didn't lie. The theologians didn't lie. They just gave Herod what he asked for. You'd like to think they would have said, why don't you open the Old Testament yourself and try and figure it out? Because what they're doing here is they've unwittingly become part of Herod's murderous plot. And it's hard to believe it's even unwitting, to be frank. You have to think they knew. How naive could they be? Herod now wants to know when the Christ is born? Nevertheless, they show up and they tell him. Now, this is is not a text that's going to comfort Herod. He fears this text from Micah 5. Now he realizes that Christ is a ruler. The Christ is the king. 
The Christ might be this, this, this universal emperor that we're all expecting to emerge out of Judea. Nevertheless, he doesn't submit to the text. He calls the Magi secretly, and he finds out from them what time exactly the star appeared. Remember, this calculation is the basis for his later killing all male children under two. So he sends the wise men off to Bethlehem. But no, So notice what else has happened here. There's a couple things we can say about the way God does things in this text. The wise men, or the magi from the east, are using creation, they're using clues, they're speculating, they've got maybe some, maybe some broad Jewish background from the scriptures, they're Persians, they follow this star, they get close. But they're not there, they're in Jerusalem. Jesus is in Bethlehem, that's six miles away. They're not there. How do they make the last leg of the journey? God uses this despotic tyrant, Herod. Herod calls them in and tells them about the Micah 5 prophecy. So God uses Holy Scripture. He uses wicked kings. And there's also sort of a lesson here. Creation can get a person in the neighborhood sometimes. There are sometimes people. And and, and they're paying attention to the world and to the moral. and, And they get in the neighborhood. But you know what? They're still going to need Holy Scripture at some point to supplement and to correct creation. And here, the Magi get Holy Scripture, ironically, from this tyrant. It's remarkable how God works in this passage. And so, Herod sends the wise men off now. They've got another six journeys. And the star then follows. Herod says, you need to go search carefully for the child. And when you find him, bring me a report that I might come and worship him also. Right? This is just rank political cynicism. Now, of course, the locals would know. The local people would know about Herod's cynicism. But these foreigners wouldn't know. They would, they would think, all right, whatever. Herod wants us to come back and, and tell him. That's why they're warned in a dream and they don't come back. Right? These, these kind of... Leaders are always masking their murderous intentions with piety. So Herod is a picture, right at the beginning of Jesus' life, of the hostility Jesus is going to face from the Jewish and Roman authorities, and the hostility that Jesus' disciples will face from bestial kings throughout history, which we saw in the book of Revelation. So that's Herod's response. And the third point here is the worship. The worship. So we're in verse 9. They leave the king, and this strange star now leads them to the immediate area where the child is. Note one other thing that's important here by its absence in the text. None of the chief priests and the scribes go with the entourage to see the Messiah. Isn't that astonishing? They don't seem to care. They know the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. They know that Herod has assembled them for this information. They know that there's some massive entourage of Persians from the east following a star looking for the king of the Jews. They give their theological input, right? And then they do nothing. They need to clean the garage, I guess. They've got stuff to do. They're not going to be bothered. They're not going to ruin their Saturday by going to Bethlehem. Meanwhile, you have pagans who've come hundreds of miles 
at their own expense. I mean, think about this, right? This is the Jewish religious establishment doing nothing. And pagans have come hundreds of miles at their own expense. They're bearing the danger and the burden of the journey, and they're carrying all these expensive gifts. By the way, I'll come back to these gifts, but we should say this about the gifts now. The gifts are an extraordinary sign of faith. What did these guys have to go on at the beginning? Almost nothing, some sort of astral phenomenon. And they bring these expensive gifts. Why? They expect to find him. They don't just expect to show up. They're going to show up with treasure. They expect to find the Messiah. The text is an indictment of the Jewish religious leadership. You don't have to wait till later in Jesus' ministry when he starts pronouncing woes on the Pharisees. A careful reader of this text would see that the religious leadership is already blinded and hardened. Matthew surely wants us to see this. One of the reasons we know this is that in Matthew's gospel a little later, he records Jesus talking about the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south. He says she made a similar journey. Another another Gentile came, came from a long distance to see Solomon. And Jesus says she will rise up and condemn this generation because something greater than Solomon is here. And you're greeting it with a yawn. So they, they, they trek on. They see the star. The text says they're overjoyed. They're overjoyed. Joy to the world, right? Joy to the pagan world. Joy to the Gentiles. Disinterest among the Jews. It's very stark, even at the beginning of the life of the incarnate word of God. Where's the joy? It's out there. And so they enter the house in verse 11. Notice, Mary and Joseph and Jesus are not in a manger here. They're in a house. He and his family have a house, and this scene takes place up to two years after his birth. So, so there's no, if you, have a man, if you have a manger scene and there are wise men in it, get the wise men out. They're, they're, not, in, they're not in the manger. So they enter the house. You could build a house. I guess you could have a house and then the wise men could be in the house. But they see the child with his mother and they fell down and they worshiped him. This is remarkable. These are the first worshipers of Jesus. We're not even sure how they got there, right? I gave you everything we got to maybe explain how they followed the star and got there. And at the end, we're like, you're like, really? That's it? And they, they packed expensive gifts, and they got a bunch of camels and food and provisions, and they trekked across the desert. Yeah, that's all we've got. And they show up, and they worship. You know what's interesting? They're, they're bowing down before a baby. I mean, perhaps the fact that they don't have the Jewish sensibilities that this might be idolatry actually helps them here. You know, if you read the other Gospels, when the shepherds come, even when Anna and Simeon in the temple greet the Christ child, in none of those texts does it say they worshipped him. They gave thanks to God. They gave glory to God. They went away praising God. These Persians bow down to the baby. They are the first people in history to worship Jesus Christ. It's astonishing. You got one humble house 
in Bethlehem with some strangers and a baby. And this is where the light breaks out to the nations. This is where all the prophetic expectation comes. It shows us both the sort of humor of God and the fact that God will just never be captured by us. You know, as an aside, you know, these men and their craft, when they come and they go west and they come into Israel and they bow down to this baby, you know what it spells the end of? It spells the end of astrology. It spells the end of planetary deities. It spells the end of whole continents of men thinking that heavenly bodies determine their fates. This is the great irony of this passage. They're looking to the star sky. They're following the star. They get to the Christ. That's the end of astrology. Sure, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a page in the back of your local newspaper. But it's banished as a serious religious idea from history because these men followed this star to this rising star. And so the whole text is meant to sort of stir in us the sense of wonder that Gentiles, far off, without God, strangers to the covenant, are being granted revelation and light in the Messiah. I know not everyone here is a Gentile, but probably most of us are. We should have immense gratitude for this. We should not take this for granted. right? You think it's odd that Persian astrologer priests from Iran are worshiping Jesus? It's much, 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 much odder that a kid from New Jersey is worshiping Jesus. Right? That, 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 peop- that, the God, that the light has moved west and crossed an ocean and crossed 20 centuries to find you. In the historical scheme of things, these guys are in the neighborhood. Both the geographic neighborhood and the temporal neighborhood. You and I, we're at the ends of the earth. I mean, this is, this is a culture with thousands of gods in it. They're all gone, and Abraham's God, the God of a tiny Semitic tribe, survives, and you and I, people not of this ethnic heritage, somehow are worshiping this God. That's the wonder of the gospel. Well, see, we, we think, well, America's a Christian country. You know, half, half, half of uh, Christians I meet seem to think that the gospel is, is basically a Gentile, white, Western American thing. And so this text reminds us of that. There are not too many Christians at this point. But they're virtually all Persians. So finally, finally a word about the gifts. There's a lot of speculation about these gifts, but basically the gifts simply mean that the child is royalty. I don't want to, to get into the whole background of it. Some people think this gift symbolizes that, and this gift symbolizes that, and this gift symbolizes that. Sometimes people will say prophet, priest, and king for the three gifts. But basically, if you look at the Old Testament texts, all the gifts mean is the child is royalty. The important thing to see about the gifts is that Scripture tells us, we saw this in the Isaiah reading, that the wealth of the nations will flow in and enrich the church, even as Israel plundered the wealth of Egypt in the Exodus. And that process ends when the nations bring their glory into the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21. That's what's going on here. There's a charming and uh, 
a speculation that these very gifts could have been used by this poor family, right, to finance their flight to Egypt and back so that Jesus and Mary and Joseph could have escaped the murderous intent of Herod. We don't know that for sure, but the point is these gifts are poured in to Jesus and his family, and they're a type of the fact that the wealth of the nations gets poured into the church. And that's what we want to see in these gifts. So I want to close with two very quick applications. They're simple. The first one's very simple, and it's I want to commend to you the wisdom of the church's lectionary. The church, there's, a lectionary means a system of reading. So you notice we have three readings a week. I don't pick the readings on most weeks. Some weeks I tweak them, but I don't pick them most weeks. They're picked out of this system of readings that have been used by the church for centuries. <laughs> now, if you look at this week's readings, you can see the wisdom of the church in this. The three readings today, they cohere in a remarkable way. You, you see in Isaiah 60 this promise that the nations and the kings will bring their wealth. Matthew 2, our text, that's the fulfillment. And then Ephesians 3 is Paul's apostolic commentary on that. He's saying... Christ will unite Jew and Gentile in one body and reveal the mystery of the gospel to the nations. So it's magnificent. You have promise, you have fulfillment, you have apostolic interpretation, and they're all there in the three readings. So I commend the lectionary to you. You can find it, Revised Common Lectionary. Just Google it. The second thing has to do with our response. It's unlikely that we're going to respond to this event like Herod, Though there is something of a Herod in every human heart. There's a, little, there's a little tyrant in every human heart. But we're more likely to find ourselves like the scribes and the chief priests who, you know, we kind of we know the scripture. We have our Old Testament prophecy at hand. Our theology may be wonderful. But we don't run to meet Jesus because Jesus keeps appearing in our lives in strange garb. <laughs> Right? He keeps showing up in ways we don't want him to show up. Very weird company. So, you know, our scriptures, our theology are, are only of use if we receive it with joy and finding Jesus in it, we offer him our time and our talents and our treasures. That's what these men offered Jesus, their time. This took years out of their life, this trip. Years out of their life. Their talents, all the talent they had about the sky, and their treasures. Right? We might be like the ordinary folks in Jerusalem. Maybe you're not like the theologians, but you know, think about the ordinary folks in Jerusalem. You know what we're told about them? Two things. They were disturbed. I guess they get very emotional at Christmas time. They were disturbed. And they also did nothing. They also didn't go to Bethlehem. They didn't follow the entourage. They're too distracted. They got distracted. They didn't go to Bethlehem, and they didn't worship either. So here you have, right in the middle of Israel, Persian astrologer priest Christians. And they have found the pearl of great price, and they're willing to risk all to pour their hard-earned substance out on the king. And as such, they stand as a witness to us, a probing witness We are Gentiles, we follow in their train. Like them, we should see Christ in in the created order, in our vocations, in our avocations, and in holy scripture. 
Right? There's this famous uh, Gerald Manley Hopkins poem where he says, Christ plays in 10,000 places. He's dropping clues everywhere. Human faces, limbs, arms, legs, plants. You've got to be looking. He plays in 10,000 places. In your vocation, in the created order, and in Holy Scripture. So let us give ourselves body and soul, time, talent, and treasure to Jesus, our King, the light of the world. Amen.